Proverbs chapter 9, we're going to look at the entire chapter, verse 1 through 18, and the message is entitled, Who Will You Follow and Serve? Solomon has been teaching his son and those being prepared for the royal court of Israel to depend on God, to obey his word, the words of wisdom that are being taught here in the book of Proverbs. The first eight chapters have consisted of what they call sonnets, which means short poems by the personification of wisdom as a woman, speaking to the simple, the foolish, and the wise man that they pay attention to her in order to live holy lives and to experience the fullness of life as God has intended it and continue to become wiser through life. The choices between wisdom and folly, foolishness. And so here in the ninth chapter, this concludes the first division, as I said, of Proverbs by calling all to make their decision on who they are going to follow in life, God or the sinful world. And it's characterized by three things. So let me um, read our text here. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her meat. She has mixed her wine. She has also furnished her table. She has sent out her maidens. She cries out in the highest place of the city, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. As for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Forsake foolishness and live and go in the way of understanding. He who corrects scoffer gets shame for himself and he who rebukes a wicked man only harms himself. Do not correct the scoffer, does he hate you? Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will still be wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For by me, your days will be multiplied, and years of life will be added to you. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself, and if you scoff, you will bear it alone. A foolish woman is clamorous. She is simple. And knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house on the seat by the highest place of the city to call to those who pass by, who go straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And as for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, Stolen waters is sweet, a bread and bread eaten in secret is pleasant, but he does not know that the dead are there and her gates are in the depths. Of hell. And so the three things that the call to decide whether to follow God or the world is as follows. First, we have the invitation of wisdom in verse 1 through 6. Secondly, you have the invitation to the insight of wisdom as he gives us some advice how to handle certain people. And then thirdly, verse 13 to 18, the invitation of folly by the immoral woman. So we begin with the invitation of wisdom here, verse 1 through 6. Notice the preparation of wisdom in verse 1 through 3. In verse 1, wisdom is provided and has provided the dining hall. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. The invitation here by wisdom uh, is very figurative in, in, in language, um, and as you know, figurative language does not mean that it's not literal at times. This is literal stuff, but in figurative language. And so 
She is personified as a woman. The reality is that it's God's wisdom that's speaking to us, even though Solomon is the speaker, the author, and wisdom is personified as a woman, but it's God who's speaking, his wisdom. So wisdom, as we have noted, means um, skill or shootability, proper understanding to comprehend knowledge and, and the issues of life, to make the best decision, the most appropriate conclusion, so that you get the best of life. That's wisdom. This form of the word uh, appears 17 times in the first nine chapters, 39 in total in the book of uh, Proverbs. There's four other different forms that appear, but uh, it's a key word through the book of Proverbs. As we go through the Proverbs tonight, after chapter 10, you'll have some key words, catch words that tie some together. And so it's important. Remember, this is Hebrew poetry. And so the poetical figurative language here continues uh, representing the literal preparations of God's wisdom for the person to make a proper choice. These are not just imaginary, but literal things as we'll see. The truth of God, what wisdom has declared, is dependent and dependable and reliable that it's going to hold you through life. It's not something fictitious or hypothetical. And this is uh, the personal choice that every person makes as they read the word of God, as they study, or as they repent from their sins, and we'll see. So the truth of God that wisdom has declared is dependable. Listen um, what, what he says. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. So the word built means to establish firm the foundation of the house to endure. The most important thing when we built the gym was the foundation. It's huge. It's got all kinds of steel. Because it's going to hold the walls, everything up through the years when the earthquakes come and everything. God's house is firm, secure. This is reinforced by the phrase hewn out. That means to dig or to cut deep for the pillars to stand strong, unmovable. This is the relationship of what he's saying in God's word. And so the word, the number here, seven, many times people uh, interpret number seven as com uh, perfection. It is not. It is completeness. You have um, seven days of the week. The eighth day is the new week. You have seven uh, notes on the music scale. The eighth is the new one. And the same with the uh, colors uh, on the scheme. And so... Uh, Completeness. His wisdom is complete. His preparation is complete for us as he offers it to us. Now look at verse 2. Wisdom has provided the meal and dinner table. She has slaughtered her meat. She has mixed her wine. She has also furnished her table. This is still figurative language for the partaker of wisdom, the word of God, that's going to nourish one spiritually. Going to school didn't nourish me spiritually. When I was going to Long Beach City and the Cal State LA, that didn't prepare me for God. I got saved in my senior year. It's the Word of God. That's what prepared you for life. And so here, um, she has prepared delicious meat. Now, you know, he uses a figurative language we all like to do. We all like to eat, right? It's always, it's always in, the, in the scriptures. Uh, she prepared her delicious meat, her mixed wine, and she's furnished her table, not with the paper plates and plastic spoons and forks. This is the decked out table. Okay? It's all prepared. 
All of this refers to all the wisdom he has declared from chapter 1, verse 20, to chapter 8, verse 36, about the nature of God's house and the divine truths that will nourish and strengthen each person who depends upon God. Everything's prepared. This is the only table, by the way, that God offers. This is the only dinner that makes a person one with God. No one else. You'll find many people give objections, and you and I had them too. Well, why can't, you know, what's wrong with religious people? What about the Buddhists? What about this? What about that? Well, Jesus says, what about them? If they don't come to me, they don't come. They don't come by choice, not because I don't love them, not because I didn't die for them, but because they choose not to believe in who I am and what I did. That's the bottom line. Listen to Isaiah. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Isaiah 55.1. That's an offer of salvation, repentance to his people, because they had betrayed God. That's all it takes for us to agree with God and ask forgiveness. Look at verse 3. Wisdom has sent out her uh, female servants to proclaim the feast. She has sent out her maidens. She cries out from the highest place of the city, um, uh, her servants. We've seen them in chapter 1, verse 20, chapter 8, verse 1, and other places. Uh, the proclamation is from the highest places of the city. Don't miss that. Uh, they cry out aloud, meaning for everybody to hear. So God's not declaring the gospel in some dark place to keep people from listening, only the ones that I choose. All over. The phrase highest places means the elevated locations of the city to reinforce that all will hear. Now, not all will respond, but all will hear. How and when and where is not my business, nor yours. We know God is just. If he died for the whole world, everybody has to hear at least one time. If not, if not, then God can't be good, can't be just. He has to be a liar. But salvation is his department, not yours and mine. <laughs> Don't worry about God missing anybody. <laughs> he won't. Look at verse 4 through 6. The solicitation of wisdom excludes no one. Here it's very, very clear. Wisdom is speaking to the one bent on waywardness. Whoever is simple... Let him turn in here. The word simple, as you know, is used for the sinner easily led, gullible, silly, immature. But he's not innocent because of our sin nature. Doesn't take long for us to catch on. The word appears 14 times in the book of Proverbs. And the simple person is living by his sinful nature, trying to find meaning in life and fulfillment through materialism, through success, through pleasure, whatever it may be. But they are very temporal. They fail to give the true meaning of life and the satisfaction, being void of God, lacking God's truth and wisdom. Now, there's nothing wrong with the car, with the house, with the job, with going to school, with anything in the context of what God has and that I'm not depending on that. But that I acknowledge he's given me that and worship him and thank him for that. That makes me a better steward of all that I have. And so the simple person, notice in Proverbs, is uh, granted by God the benefit of correcting his sinful ways. Listen to what he says. Let him turn in here. God doesn't say, oh, you did that. Oh, I, no, it's not for you. 
God's not going to say, you did what? He knows everything. He rejects no one. But he's constantly presented the simple person as one who prefers to reject God, to reject the school of wisdom, of instruction and discipline. So he's left hopeless. And all that he does in life is vain. How many hours, how many hours and years were empty, vain, cruising ball and part, going to parties, doing all stupid things, wasted time, zippo. That was dead. Didn't know any better. But then the gospel came to my life. Notice verse 4 at the end there in the, to 5. Wisdom is also speaking to the one with rebellious heart. So he gives a lot of different individuals here. As for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. The word understanding is the word leb for heart. It's for, it refers to the intellect, the emotion, and the will, the the inclinations and determination of the will of man, lacking heart discernment. He rejects the things of God. They're moving emotionally sometimes. So you go to funerals, I minister the gospel, and you know people are moved, they're confronted with life and death, but then they get to their car and parking lot, they forget about it. Some people just move, move emotionally, or they just come, well, I'll wait till I'm... But they're accountable. The problem is not intellectual. Some of these wayward people, some of these sinners, they're, they're smart people. It's not intellectual. It's the heart, Jeremiah 79. Deceitful, desperately wicked. That's always a problem. And so the two imperative commands to, take, to partake here with wisdom and live are in the figurative language. Eat my bread, drink the wine I have mixed. Notice that though these are imperative commands in the Hebrew, God does not force the sinner to obey or repent. It almost seems paradoxical, contradictory. Why would you offer somebody if they can reject it? Because they're accountable. God does not force you to go to heaven. God does not force you to go to hell. Everybody in hell knows they sent themselves there. No one's blaming God right now. The figurative language is describing a literal truth of repentance to be one with God in fellowship. It's an invitation. Look at verse 6. Wisdom is making the appeal to make a personal decision to turn from sin, forsake foolishness and live, and go in the way of understanding. Today, a lot of the gospel is presented as just are you sorry for what you did? Well, sorry. Sorry doesn't mean that. Sorry doesn't mean repentance. Sorry means you regret what you did. Remorse. But you really, it's like the guy that gets sentenced for life because he killed somebody and he starts crying because he, he's going to spend the rest of his life in jail. Not that he's sorry for the person he killed. Just the consequences. The obedience by repenting is indicated by the word forsake. It means to depart, to leave behind, to abandon foolishness and folly, the things of no value, the things that do not please God. 
the things that bring destruction to life here on earth in eternity. A good portion of my friends died due to drugs where they got stabbed or shot. I buried some of them. But then again, remember my friend Joy Hernandez, he came after 40 years of visiting and praying him and all that. All he had was one more strike. He was a lifer. Heroin, all kinds of stuff. And yet he came to the Lord when I buried his mom. God gave him 10 years, gave him back the days and the years the kangaroo had eaten, and he just died about three weeks ago. We'll do a funeral this next Saturday. Man, what a blessing that he's in heaven. Man, he would have been lost. Amazing. Notice the outcome of repentance is promised by the word live. It means to have life, not physically, but spiritually. Physically is just for a set amount of years, but everybody will live eternally. Many people say, well, yeah, I don't know if I want to live eternally. Well, you don't have a choice on that. You're going to live eternally. All you can do is choose where? Heaven or hell? Being forgiven for all our sins, being a child of God. Notice the evidence of repentance is stated. And go the way of understanding. The word go there again now walk straight, implying a transformation, a progress. That which you have experienced if you're born again. The word understanding is discernment, indicating the way and life of God to know spiritual truth. Now you're able to connect the dots. You've connected the dots. All of a sudden, bam, you see it. You understand it. You know, Jesus invited many people to be saved. One rich rich young man, you know, he had everything in life, and he said uh, to Jesus, you know, what what do I have to do to get eternal life? And he says, you know, keep all the commandments. Well, I kept them all since my youth. He says, okay, you lack one thing. Go sell all you have, give it to the poor. And he walked away sad because he had many possessions, Luke 10, 17 through 22. Now, there's nothing wrong with money. I'm sure if you would have said, okay, Jesus, I forget it. Just follow me. What he wants is your heart, not your money. Sadly, and I apologize for the begging church and begging Christians that are always making believe that God is broke, when they have to beg and prod people. God, God owns the cattle on every hill. <laughs> God's interested in your heart and your eternity and to give you life abundantly here on earth so you can enjoy life. That's what he's interested in. The invitation of salvation was given to many by Jesus. The woman of Samaria, you know, he said, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give to him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give to him will become to him as a fountain of water springing forth into everlasting life. John 4, 13 and 14. Well, this woman said, let me have that water. To the people of Capernaum, Jesus said, then Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives you, gives life to the world. John 6, 32. Through 33. It was Jesus. Now he's talking figuratively that he's the bread, but literally he's the one that, that nourishes. He's the one that gives us life. To the Jews in Jerusalem, he said, On that last day, 
the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man or anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of this heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Holy Spirit, whose, the, uh, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so he's speaking about that. The invitation always, thirsting, hungering, the preparations for people to be forgiven for their sins has been made by the Father. Just think of some of these things. John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus told it about uh, his uh, cousin John the Baptist. John 1.29. He's the one. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, not ours alone, but the whole world. 1 John 2.2. 2. Did you hear that, Calvinist? He's a propitiation for our sins, the Christian, and the whole world, the non-believer. Jesus didn't die just for a few or the chosen frozen. He died for all. Jesus destroyed Satan, who had the power of death, Hebrews 2.9. Jesus tasted death for every person, Hebrews 2.14. Jesus said he was the only way in John 14.6, the only name, Acts 4.12, the only meteor, 1 Timothy 2.5. All the preparations, everything's done, the table's set. All sinners have to do is respond and come. Jesus is the highest authority. Listen to him. Jesus said the majority of people will reject him to be saved. What about you if you don't know him? Will you accept him or reject him? That's a personal choice. Listen to Luke 13, 22 through 24. And he went through the cities and villages teaching and so journeying towards Jerusalem. <clears throat> then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And Jesus said to them, strive. It's an athletic term. Agonize. Agon. To enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. The able is not by some work. The not be able to is because they do not believe that he's the only way. They don't choose him. They reject. He's the highest authority. Jesus says the majority of people will end up in hell. But they'll never be able to blame him. Wow. This is the invitation of wisdom. Now, secondly, notice verse 7 through 12, you have the invitation to the inside of wisdom, where he gives us some advice here. In verse 7 and 9, <clears throat> the counsel of wisdom regarding the reproof of the ungodly. Uh, in verse 7, the warning is about a scorner. He who corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself. So scoffer, scorner, the words are used differently in, the, in different um, translations. He, anyone, anyone who corrects a scoffer or a scorner, the word correct means to instruct, to chasten by discipline. Our heart doesn't like that. One who confronts a person to point out their error or their misguidance. The one being chastened, notice, is the scorner, which means to talk arrogantly, 
The word in Proverbs is used for one who boasts, mocks, derides, found 14 times. The scorner is the epitome of pride, holding nothing sacred. He is profane. The scorner has an answer and a smart remark for everything. He's wise in his own eyes. Now we all joke around and play like that, but there's people that are real serious. They just, you know, they've got to come back for everything. And they're not kidding. They're dead serious. The outcome of the confrontation notice of the scoffer is shame to the confronter. Look at the text. The word shame means dishonor or disgrace from the scorner in the way he will react or the words he will fire back. It is like casting your pearls before the swine to trample underfoot, as Jesus said in Matthew 7, 6. The warning is also about the wicked person, the second person here, the second part of seven. And he who rebukes a wicked man only harms himself. Verse 7 is a completive proverb called synthetic parallelism. The second line agrees and amplifies or completes the first line, supplementing the original thought of the first line. And when there's second or third or fourth line, it'll follow also. So this kind is recognized at times when the second line of the proverb starts with the word and. It completes it. Okay? The contrast would be but. That would be an antithetical uh, proverb or a contrast. And so the word rebukes here means chide or judge. How do people respond today? The first thing when you tell them, I'm not judging. We, have, we are brain dead today. We are so politically correctly oppressed and so pressured that we're afraid to make right judgments. And offend somebody. Listen, some people need to be offended. They're so dumb. And so stamped by the world to think and quack like ducks. The one being judged is a wicked man, ungodly person, guilty of sin. This could be about something moral, ethical, spiritual, word or deed. We don't know. We're not given exact specific things. The outcome of the confrontation, notice, results in harm to the one who is confronting. The word harm means blemish or spot, so there's no specific thing stated here, only that rebuking a wicked person is not good for the confronter. <laughs> it could be that he cusses at you, it could be that he tries to punch you out, it could be he picks up a brick and hits you You fill in the blank. Many different things. And so the unbeliever is very intolerant to correction or rebuke by a Christian. The world is very, very hostile. Notice verse 8 and 9. We have commands for various individuals now. So this is advice for wisdom for us how to deal with certain situations here. Verse 8 is an antithetical proverb. Uh, antithetical means contrast again. And so the warning about the scoffer is do not correct the scoffer lest he hate you. The phrase do not correct means, again, the same word, chide or judge. The same word is verse 7. 
but it's translated rebuke. So it's not saying that we don't do that, but what he's saying, and sometimes it seems to contradict each other, is that there's a time when the person's open and, and hopefully you're sensitive to that, and there comes a time when you just back off. You don't do it, okay? The reason given is he will hate you, have disdain, hostility, animosity towards you with intent of harm. Notice the directive then comes for a wise man. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. The word rebuke again is like the one before, the two before, chide or judge. By the way, it's an imperative command here. The response of a wise man is to love you because he's not filled with pride, but he's humble and he wants to continue to grow. That's why the command, because God knows the heart of that person who's truly seeking. Verse 9, it's a comparative proverb here called synthetic parallelism when the second line again repeats the first line in slightly different words. The directive is to the wise man, give instruction to a wise man and he will be wiser. The word give means to be stored, to grant instruction. Another imperative command. The reason is that he is a wise man, shrewd, cunning, in what is good. He'll become wiser. He's walking with God. Then the directive to the just man. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. The word teach, again, to make known, to declare. And it's another imperative command. The just man means one who is lawful, righteous, one who's walking with God. There's only two people that in the scriptures, those that walk and those that don't. Those that know God, those that don't. And so the reason is that he will increase in learning. So we have to be discreet in who is approachable, who is not. Where are they at? How are their, their response? And I want to use wisdom. Look at verse 10 to 12 now. We have the blessing of wisdom regarding the godly. In verse 10, the foundational principle. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The word fear can mean fear or terror, respect or reverence. Here it is reverence, reverencing to God. The fear of the Lord refers to the awe of the believer over the covenant God Yahweh in worship and honor and holiness, enjoying fellowship with him that leads us to the wisdom of God as we continue to grow. The word Fear appears 23 times in the book of Proverbs. The reverential awe of the believer, of Yahweh, the covenant God, is the beginning of wisdom, it says here. The word beginning means the first chief or the best or the foremost. The first step of wisdom towards wisdom. The fear of the Lord. That's the first step. Now, when you remember, we were first introduced in chapter 1, verse 7. There it says the fear of the Lord in chapter 1, verse 7 says is the beginning of knowledge. But it uses a different word for beginning. Foundational knowledge. It's the foundation. And then the first step from that foundation is the first step to wisdom. The fear of the Lord. What has been lost today in the Christian community is the fear of God in many different ways. And so verse 7 of chapter 1 is a key verse, as you know. 
to the book of Proverbs. It's called the bottle, the central motif. The fear of the Lord runs through the book. Wisdom is the theme throughout. And so the number of verses regarding the fear of the Lord Yahweh here are 19. Let me just give you a few of them. Uh, chapter 8, verse 13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance in the evil way, and the perverse mouth I hate. So whatever God hates, you and I are to hate. God hates? Absolutely. Read the book. It'll tell you what he hates. 1027, the fear of the Lord Yahweh prolongs days, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. Proverbs 14:26, in the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence, and his children will have a place of refuge. The fear of the Lord. Great, great theme. Now look at the second part of 10. The foundational spiritual perception, the knowledge of the Holy One, is understanding. And so the word knowledge means perceptive skill, ability to discern, knowing the truth of God. But here it's very specific. The Holy One, the sacred, the one set apart. The heavens are not pure in his eyes. He's holy, spotless, sinless. This is referring to the Father, Yahweh, the covenant God. Now notice the word understanding again. It means to have insight. When we have perceptive discernment about the Holy One, about who God is and holiness that He is, we have spiritual insight. Everything makes sense. Again, you can connect the dots. It is not because of the knowledge of education, but because of the wisdom and knowledge of the Scriptures that we understand this. The key for abundant life followed. Look at verse 11. For by me your days will be multiplied and years of life will be added to you. Living by the wisdom of God leads to a long life. Much longer than if you stayed in the world. I started drinking when I was 14, 15 years old. I got to say when I was 23. If I would have continued to drink, I wouldn't be here. And if I was... I wouldn't look that good. I wouldn't be that agile or whatever. It takes a toll on you. And so, first, a better quality of life the minute you're born again. You live differently. You're not doing dumb things. You don't have guilt and stuff going on. You're not trying to hide. You're not trying to play the game. You be real to God and to people. But secondly, a longer quantity of life. That doesn't mean that Christians don't die young. They do sometimes. But for the most part, you put a believer or a non-believer in the difference of life, the believer is going to outlive the non-believer all the time. You live differently. Just like statistically, single men die younger than married men because they've got someone taking care of them, sharing the load. A single person doesn't. And God made us for fellowship to have each other. It's simple. So notice this long life issue is repeated throughout Proverbs. We've ran 
into before, 3.2, 3.16, and other places. This is another completive proverb here. Look at verse 12. The principle of sowing and reaping is now given to us. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself, and if you scoff, you will bear it alone. This is an antithetical proverb, a contrast, very evident. The person who makes their decision in life to be wise by God will receive the benefit. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. The wise person obeying God will reap the fruit of righteousness. This is not a selfish thing. It will benefit your life first, then the life of others. The scriptures always emphasize personal choices regarding God and the things of God. Throughout scripture, Deuteronomy 24, 16, Jeremiah 31, 30, Ezekiel 18, 4, and many, many, many others. And so notice the person who scoffs at God and the things of God will also reap the consequences. And if you scoff, you will bear it alone. Alone. The word scoff means to boast arrogantly. The phrase to bear alone, to bear it means to carry, being responsible for the consequences of choice before God. Don't, don't, don't think that at the white throne judgment when God judges every non-believer that there's going to be a lot of dialogue going back and forth. This is not night court. There's only going to be a one-way conversation. Because when every non-believer stands before God, they will not try to defend themselves. They'll know that they'll know that they'll know that they're guilty and deserve hell. And they'll know that they'll know that they're standing before a God who knows everything, even the intent of their heart. We have no idea. We try to judge things by our limited and understanding and think that we can, well, well maybe it'll happen to it. No, 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 no. It's just not going to happen that way. Joshua illustrates our point. Joshua 24, 15, he says, And if uh, it seems evil to you to serve the Lord Yahweh, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Parents, you stand fast. Your children, your children. They're underage, they're under your authority. You set the rules. They eat your food, you sleep in your bed, I've told you often. When they grow up, they don't want to. They have a choice to do whatever they want. But you always call them back. You always remind them to remember what you've taught them. When you've taken them to church, the Bible, you can't force them. It'll break your heart. But there are some children that have rejected heaven and have chosen hell. But you as a parent must be that lighthouse to stand, to always demonstrate what it is to be a Christian, the only hope. Because you never know that the grandchildren God will save and bring the parents back. You don't know the mind of God. So you don't compromise with your kids. You're the parents. Think about the insight 
the wisdom God has given to you on how to handle so many different situations of life that you would not have been able to before the Lord. You would have handled them differently, completely. Difficult family members and people, difficult circumstances of life, situations. But they know the word of God. You know how you're to confront it, how you're to speak, what you're to do. The world just resorts to their own way, to anger, to hostility, or whatever it is. The ability to give biblical answers to those who are complaining against Christianity or whatever it may be. We're to give an answer to every man for the reasons of the hope that lies in us with meekness and fear, not being ashamed. It's better that if the will of God be that we suffer than to suffer for doing evil, 1 Peter 3, 15 through 17 says. Think of the great insight and benefit you have reaped from the life of Christians that feared God, people that were praying for you before you were saved. Maybe you're ignorant of who was praying for you. Maybe you came to know who was praying for you. People who preached the gospel to you, presented Christ to you. The people that took time to instruct you when you first came to Christ, go out of their way to make sure you're reading the word and you understand it and take you to some basic principles, basic doctrines. The incredible example of godly people being servants of the church, models of Christ. And you say, I want to be like that person gives you something visible you can grab a hold of. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example of the believer in word and conduct and love and spirit and faith and purity. Till I come, give attention to reason, exhortation, and doctrine, 1 Timothy 4, 12-13. That's what we're to do until the Lord takes us home. All of us. Think of the people you know that will have to bear the accountability before God for rejecting the gospel. Family members good friends, co-workers, strangers. Paul says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will reap of the flesh corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. It is a choice, ladies and gentlemen. No one can blame anybody. They cannot blame anyone at all. And so this is the invitation to the inside of wisdom. How do we deal with different individuals? Because what's at stake is eternity. It's not here and now, man. I mean, I look back at my life. It's like James says, a vapor of smoke. <laughs> I mean, I, I can see me in Mexico City playing marbles in, my, in front of my house right now. And, you know, and my little brother died on New Year's Eve. I was about five years old. I see me coming to the United States, going to L.A., living there on Huntley Drive, going to Our Lady of Loretto, going to Montebello, going to school there, then Ball Park, then school, then married, then kids, now the grandkids, all of that, the Lord saving me, everything, fast. But I'm so glad I did it with the Lord. What a difference it would have made the other way. A bad difference. Notice thirdly here, 13 through 18, the invitation of falling by the immoral woman. In 13 through 15, the invitation of the immoral woman is given to us. The woman is loud and arrogant. A foolish woman is clamorous. She is simple and knows nothing. 
She is described as foolish, meaning she is, the word literally means uh, stupidity, mindless, dull-hearted. This is the only time the word appears in this form in the Old Testament. This is not talking about intellectual ability. She could be a genius. We're talking about spiritually. This refers to the irrationality, absurdity of her moral character, which is none. She's immoral. She's also described as clamorous. It means to be in a stare, be in commotion, turbulent, boisterous, loud. Folly is her middle name. People are always being loud, whether it be women or men. Always calling attention. Always have to be the center thing. Shut up and sit down. But that's the world, right? She's also described as clamorous. It means, I'm sorry, um, this woman stands out aggressively. No, we've been around people that are just big mouth. You go to a restaurant and this and that, and they're just, you're going, it's just, they have no discretion where they're at, what they're doing. The woman uses her tongue, her mouth, and her lips to deceive and destroy. The word is translated raging in the King James Version. A brawler in the New King James to describe wine and strong drink in Proverbs 20, verse 1. This is her. She's described as simple again, but the different form of the word here, gullible, still, silly, immature, but not innocent. This woman is willful and purposeful in her intents. This word form also appears only this one time here in the Old Testament. She's described last as knowing nothing. Notice that to perceive or be acquainted with anything. She knows nothing about morality or godliness. It's the last thing on her mind and her heart. This woman is dead in trespasses and sins. This woman knows nothing about God, nor wants to do or know anything about God or the things of God. Look at verse 14. The woman is looking for victims. For she sits at the door of her house on a seat by the highest place in the city. Chapter 1, verse 21 says she cries out in the chief concourses at the opening of the gate in the city. She speaks her words. Chapter 7, 11 through 12 says she was loud and rebellious. Her feet would not stay at home. At times she was outside, at times in the open square, lurking at every corner. Chapter 5, 3 through 4 says, For the lips of an immoral woman drip honey, and her mouth is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Notice she solicits all, look at 15, to call to those who pass by, who go straight on their way. Proverbs 7, 13 through 15 again says, So she caught him and kissed him 
with an impudent face and said to him, I have peace offerings with me. Today I have paid my vows, so I came out to meet you diligently to seek your face, and I have found you. Come, let us take our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey, Proverbs 7, 18 through 19. All of this sounds exciting, but it's costly. Very, very costly. It can cost a person their eternity. In verse 16 to 18, the deception of the immoral woman has consequences, we're told here. In 16, the simple is a naive and gullible person again. Whatever is simple, or whoever is simple, let him turn in here. Make your choice. By her smooth and flaming words, by her sensuous mannerisms of body language, by her invitation to spend the night uninterrupted. Notice the rebellious in heart is tempted and trapped. It says in 16 and 17, and as for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Oof. She seduces a young man by wearing him down, not having understanding, leb, an understanding heart for God, the young man. Proverbs 5, 15 through 18. If your heart's not with God, young people, the currents are very, very strong in the world. The canyons are deep. The cliffs are treacherous. You must be careful. Her words capture his mind and inflame his sexual passions to commit fornication or adultery, whether he's single or married. She's a destroyer of men and marriages. Notice the deception in verse 18. But he does not know that the dead are there. That her guests are in the depths of hell, Sheol. Like an ox to the slaughter, like a fool to the correction of stocks, Proverbs 7.32 says. So inviting, so trapping. What do we do when we go hunting? We put a bait out there. We want to lure in that animal so we can capture it and kill it. What do we do when we go fishing? We tell the fish, look what I got. I got a little, little piece of meat for you. Liar, you have a hook for me. Like a bird to the snare, Proverbs 7:23. Listen to Proverbs 7:26 and 27. She has cast many wounded and strong men. They're not just wimpy men. Strong men. And her house is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death. Our present world of globalism. And the world form of Klaus Schwab illustrates our point perfectly that they're choosing the invitation of folly by the immoral woman that leads to hell and rejects the invitation of God.
What the God did Fauci, Bill Gates, Klaus Schwab, Newsom would repent. Now, my natural mind says, no way. But God saved me. He forgave me. So he can forgive anybody. That would be the best for the world. Can you imagine a person like Fauci to get born again and really come clean? Or anybody else? Amazing. But that's the God we serve. But the chances of that decrease the older you get. And the more deep you get into sin. Your heart becomes totally hard and your mind becomes just degenerated. Difficult. The vices and pleasures of the world and our sin nature offers us are very temporal. To, to choose them reveals that we're fools. As I said earlier, your pastor used to be a fool. That's where I live. 1 John 2, 15 through 17 says, Do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life, is not of the Father but of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. The minute you give up your last breath as a Christian, you're instantly present before the Lord. My friend Joey Hernandez, when he gave up his last breath, bam, in front of Jesus. Everything that he's been living for for the last 10 years. If he had not been born again, he would have been instantly in hell. Horrible. I am so grateful to God for saving him. The life Jesus offers us is God-like in quality and eternal in quantity. To choose this makes us very, very wise. But it comes with the proclamation of the gospel. When he, Jesus, had called his disciples to himself, said to the disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my name's sake and the gospel will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in, the, in this adulterous sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory of the Father with his holy angels. Mark 8, 34 through 38. There is a day that you're going to die, I'm going to die, or a day when Jesus is coming back to judge the world. A day when he will take his church out of here. And the exhortation always, be ready. Pray that you will be worthy to stand before the Son of Man. Be careful like the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, the days of Lot, the days of Noah. All of those things are given to us as warnings. They're right before us, ladies and gentlemen. They have just taken up lightning speed in the last three years. And so this is the invitation of folly by the immoral woman. What will your choice be? I pray that you choose for Jesus, that you call on his name, whether you're here or over the internet. He wants to transform your life and show you what life's really all about. 
And so the ninth chapter concludes the first division of the Proverbs here by calling all to make their decision on who they will follow in life. God or the sinful world? And he's ended by the three things that he's given us here. The invitation of wisdom, the invitation to the inside of wisdom, and the invitation of folly by the immoral woman. The choice is one or the other. You can't have both. Have you ever been, when you were going to school, did you ever like two guys or two girls at the same time? It didn't last long, did it? As soon as they find out, they're not going to tolerate it. You got to choose one or the other. You cannot have a divided heart. A divided heart means you have no heart. No heart at all. You want a heart of God as he deals with you, as he leads you, as he guides you. Father, thank you for your grace, your love and goodness. We love you. We thank you for your mercy, Lord, and just over our lives. We thank you for the privilege of ministering your word and seeing your work in the midst of us, Lord and being able to just declare it to those who don't know you yet. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Maybe you're over the internet and you don't know him. God would have you to repent through a very simple prayer of repentance. Jesus always has public confession, as he told a young man, to repent. Repent, the kingdom of God's at hand. That was the central message, John the Baptist. And then when he got thrown in jail, Jesus preached the same gospel. The apostles preached the same gospel. I preached the same gospel. Repentance. If you believe that Jesus is God, who became man, died for your sins, and rose from the dead, you can call upon him right now, and he will save you. This is a very simple prayer. Your prayer to him, not to us. And he's going to bury every one of your sins in the deepest oceans. Your prayer. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with the Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.